Hello, I'm Jimmy Famarewa and welcome to this very, very special episode of Life on a Plate, the podcast from Waitrose. This week, we deviated from our usual recipe and devoted ourselves to an exploration and celebration of the endlessly fascinating art of baking with not one, not two, but three special guests. Now, unfortunately, Alison was away for this particular one, so I drafted in a brilliant special co-host for this particular episode, and that is Martha Collison. Martha, thank you for joining me and being by my side. It was an utter pleasure, Jimmy. I've been a fan of Life on a Plate for a long while. I love listening along um, to you and Alison, so it's been really exciting to be part of it. Well, that is very sweet of you to say that you're a fan of the show, but of course, one of the very exciting reasons to have you on is you're a baking star in your own right. Back in 2014, you were the youngest ever contestant on the Bake Off, and uh, you've now got two delicious cookbooks to your name, and uh, also a prime spot, uh, Baking on Air for or uh, Graham Norton's radio show on Virgin. And I believe you were even asked to make afternoon tea at Wimbledon a couple of years back. Mm, I was indeed. Um, I felt very privileged to be given a little spot to bake cakes alongside the Rue family who were doing mm. all of the amazing dinners and lunches. Um, yeah, my cakes had a little space, which was really exciting. That is uh, pretty good. Pretty prestigious. So you're very busy. You've got a lot on. You're making me feel very old by uh, knowing that you was you were in Bake Off at such a young age, but I lured you away, and we've managed to get you because of this unbelievable lineup that we've somehow managed to wrangle. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> it really was such an incredible lineup. I mean, how could I not say yes? Uh, I looked at the list, and the first name on the list is one of the greatest bakers and cookery writers of all time. Um, and to make you feel even older, Jimmy, her book, The Domestic Goddess, came out when I was only three years oh, old. God, you're just <laughs> really, really rubbing it in now. But yeah, all right, carry on. So it is, of course, the amazing Nigella Lawson. Yeah, I can't believe it. Even as you say it, I can't believe that we did have her on and uh, she was brilliant. She's also joined uh, on the panel by uh, two young up-and-coming stars of the baking world who were really great, uh, Ravneet Gill and Ed Kimber, a.k.a. The Boy Who Bakes, who is a fellow uh, Bake Off alum just like you. He is, of course, and Ed was the first ever winner of Bake Off back in 2010. So in this episode, we talked all about what baking really means today, where it's headed in the future. And we also talked about whether there can ever be too many brownie recipes in the world. Absolutely not, is of course the the (laughs) answer to that. Yeah, it's of course the correct (laughs) answer. But I won't give away um, what the panel said, which is far more reasoned and interesting. So let's waste no more time. Here is our very special baking-focused episode of Life on a Plate. So here we are then. I do feel slightly like I've assembled a crack team of superheroes like the Baking Avengers or something and drawn you all together. Let's start off by introducing all of you. So first up, we have Nigella Lawson. 
You're the author of 12 books, including uh, The Baking Guide, How to Be a Domestic Goddess, and most recently, The Fabulous Cook, Eat, Repeat. Hello, Nigella, and welcome to the panel. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. And next up, we have Ravneet Gill, who is a professional pastry chef and recipe writer, and also judge on the Junior Bake Off. As well as all that, she's the author of two books, uh, The Pastry Chef's Guide and The Brew. Brilliantly titled Sugar, I Love You. Uh, welcome, Ravneet. Hi, thanks so much for having me. And then last but not least, we have the fantastic Ed Kimber. He's a food writer and TV chef, regular appearances on Sunday Brunch. He's also a photographer and a food stylist of real distinction. And he is the author of an acclaimed book blog the boy who bakes and four books i believe or is it five five in october five in october um including most recently one tin bakes and one tin bakes easy which are absolutely gorgeous and speak to me as the sort of baker (laughs) that wants the results but doesn't really want to have to wash up that much or try too hard so um thank you so much for joining us uh i feel like this is going to be such an interesting conversation i suppose maybe the place to start is it does feel like baking has got a cultural influence that feels quite unique and you know baking is the thing that not just home cooks are being drawn to for its therapeutic qualities but it's the thing that has cues snaking out of doors and you know people really getting excited about techniques and pushing things to their limits but also rediscovering old timeless staples it just seems it just seems like baking has never been more important nigella i know that people might be surprised to hear this but you talk about the fact that you came quite late to baking mm. what is it that you saw in it and what do you still seeing it well well when i'd written my first book you have to understand um i had a you know a chapter on basics so i thought oh, i better do some baking for that um you know i could do you know i could uh, i it wasn't that i never baked but i didn't come from you know when i was growing up we didn't have dessert or sweet things particularly and it, it really interested interested me but, because I had always thought there were cooks and there were bakers, and I was a cook. And then I started baking, and I thought, you know, all this mythology around it is is ridiculous. It's actually quite straightforward. But I really felt so gripped by it. And actually, when I said I wanted to do How to Be a Domestic Goddess, which is my second book, Title ironic. Um, it's it. You know, the publishers said, but no one bakes anymore because really it was something that perhaps some people remember their grannies doing. But when they said no one bakes, uh, you know, there isn't. There's not a book that you know. And I said, look, if you don't want to publish it, that's absolutely fine. It's the book I want to write. Yeah, yeah. It seemed to me that there is something that people find either calming or fulfilling about baking and I think to me it's always been about human beings have um, a fantasy about transformation it's why you see endless sort of articles on you know hairstyles or in gyms and all that but when you cook say when you cook a stew you sort of have an idea what the what the meat and the leeks and the carrots and the stock and the wine and the onions are going to be. But the 
extraordinary, I don't know what, what, what to call it, sort of magic, it seems, to someone who's not trained, whereby how, how is it that these eggs, the sugar, the flour, the butter turn into a cake? And I think that, you know, so I think of it baking as a, as, as a mixture between chemistry and poetry. And I think that the chemistry side gives people a sense of accomplishment and fulfilment. And the poetry side makes people feel they've created something that sums up comfort, perhaps nostalgia, and it's unnecessary. It's a treat, you you don't need a cake to survive. And so I think it speaks to a very deep part inside people rather than just this sense of um, getting things done well. You know, there is something else. Ed, you were nodding vigorously there. Is that completely how you feel as well? That that idea of magic and the conjuring of baking, I think, is something that people talk about, but it's so vital to it, isn't it? Yeah, I think for me, the, one of the things that keeps me baking, like I definitely started from a position of comfort and relaxation. You know, I had a job that I hated and baking was kind of how I turned my brain off. But there's something incredibly special about, like Nigella says, taking, you know, flour, sugar, eggs, butter, and turning it into like millions of different things. And there's something just fascinating to me. Like I, I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm just slightly weird, but I will sit and think, how did someone take wheat and then figure out you could turn it into flour <laughs> and then figure out you could turn it into bread? It's just like that whole process to me is just amazing and it never it just will never bore me and I just kind of I think when you pull like a loaf of bread out of the fridge out of the fridge why is it in the fridge in the oven (laughs) (laughs) you have this like moment of like you made that from flour you know flour salt and water and it's just to me that's incredible yeah there's a specific pride isn't there like no matter how lumpen or you know yeah i think we get too obsessed with looks like you know it doesn't have to look perfect it just has to be something you made there's something very special about making something for yourself ravni i know that obviously you've you've been on the intensely professional side and working in restaurant kitchens like st john and really sort of uh revitalizing their sort of pudding menu there and um, what was your kind of journey to it yeah i mean i actually grew up above a corner shop so yes, I had yeah. a massive sweet tooth and I would always run down in the morning and like stuff my face. I'd get like crunchies and chocolate covered raisins. And I was like, had a massive sweet tooth to the point where I got a hole in my tooth and my parents <laughs> never said no. Like Saturday mornings, I always remember I'd run downstairs, grab the biscuit tin and just like stuff my face in Maryland. And I remember going to my cousins being like, where's the Maryland's? Why am I only allowed two? I'm allowed to eat the whole tin. So I I had no limit when it comes to like sugar eating and no boundaries. But my mum could not bake like at all. She's a fantastic cook, but she can't bake. Mm, mm. So um, I had to teach myself. And then I went to uni, did a psychology degree. And then in the back of my head, I was doing all these bake sales for charity as a way of baking. And then I was like, I'm going to go be a chef. And that's sort of how it happened. And then I went to be a pastry chef and 
yeah, I think it's a great way of connecting people and bringing people together. Yeah, completely. And and just to bring it back to um, um, how to be a domestic goddess, ironic title. Uh, it's almost like you need to like bracket that in the new edition. <laughs> <don't you? laughs> um, My um, fault. But yeah, it's it's really it's it's really striking. Like picking that up again. That you did kind of you talk about it there, and your publishers weren't interested and. Baking had this kind of fusty um, mm. image and the, the domestic goddess idea that you were playing with there that, all oh, you should have a, a fantastic pie waiting for your husband when he emerges home or whatever. And you were kind of reclaiming that idea. And so it does feel like mm, yeah. you kind of were ahead of the curve there in terms of setting that in motion. It kind of brings alive modern baking. This was the one book, I actually have it in my hand, it's the one book um, that I nicked. <laughs> I nicked it off my mum's bookshelf when I moved out because I was like, this is a book that I need to take me forward. <laughs> in my baking <laughs> career, I need to learn all of these things. Um, so I just wanted to ask, I guess, like what was the specific urge, um, kind of the impetus just to write this, why this book, I guess? Well, just because, you know, I was seized with such sudden enthusiasm. And I felt that baking had been, to some extent, uh, misconstrued or mythologised. Now, obviously, um, you know, I can't do what, you know, Ed or, or Rab do. You know, that, that's not there, but I felt that... You know, there's a way in, and it seemed to me I wanted to share this liberating discovery I had made just for myself that you you could do it, that things could look homemade. And because I had been, you know, perhaps, you know, had been going into, for me, unknown territory at first, it meant, I, I suppose, that I could explain it to people who were similarly cautious or frightened. And I, I think when you're really excited about something, it's, it's such a pleasure. I, I think that it just suited my own life at the time, but it was really just more about this you know, enormous passion I suddenly mm. had for baking. It's nobody's worth mm. I, I could never I can never get over it. It's a bit, you know, like Ed says, there's always a moment of sort of happiness when it comes out of the oven. Although, you know, I feel like that about cooking too, but there is something about it. It's so rewarding. It is very rewarding. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Ed, when you kind of got to the stage of you were developing your own recipes and coming up with things, and it seems like people really push stuff in terms of texture and colour and different bakes and your bakes are so creative and so visually striking how do you strike the balance in terms of really pushing it being ambitious and also just getting that humble cake I want it in front of me <laughs> like and I want it to be fairly easy I think it's really interesting because the amount of times I've heard of the last like 11 12 years that I cannot bake is shockingly high from so many people and I've always come to it that anybody can bake, like anybody can bake. And baking is, for most people, it's following a list of instructions. Some cooks are very free-flowing, so they find it hard to stick to that kind of routine of baking. But I think anybody at home can make a cake, and that's always been how I approach any project I've worked on. So with every book that I've written, I start with the idea that a chunk of the recipes will be very approachable, really easy, straightforward, but because I want books to live with people for a long time, I will kind of also include a graduation of skill level 
and kind of elements so that you can live with a book for, you know, 10 years, because as you get more confident, there is more things in there for you. Um, but what was interesting was when uh, Want and Bates came out last year, within days and days of it coming out, people were saying how much they were enjoying it being simple. And there were so many people that messaged saying, I've never baked before. This has been great and finding it easy. So that's why we decided to do it an, a one labeled easy because it really felt like last year, it really invigorated people's need for everything that bacon gives. That's, you know, comfort and all the pleasures that it brings. And also, Ed, don't you find that people often, they, they, don't, they don't separate taste or experience from the method. So you can mm. make a cake very simple, yes. but it can have complexity of flavour. You know, and I think that's what's, you know, and that's also very important, as it is in cooking, you know, that, yeah, that actually you can concentrate on flavour without requiring a cake, you know, that is, an, you know, a huge thing to assemble. One of the things that we, um, well, well, I, sorry, when I spoke to my publisher, for years they've been trying to get me to write an easy baking book. And I've always said no. And the only reason for that is books that have in the past been labeled as easy, to me, often patronize a reader and they're very boring. Like the recipes don't have anything of interest. So when we were having this conversation about how to approach easy baking, the thing I kept saying is I can do easy, but I want it to make, I want it to taste delicious because it's the whole point, you know. I love a Victoria sponge, but I'm not going to make it every time. I want something that excites me. And so I think it was a really fun challenge to make things that are very straightforward and easy. Give them interest. Give them, you know, something delicious. We keep returning to this idea of cooks versus bakers and I wondered Ravni it's something that permeates in the professional world isn't it like you know and it's kind of you know pastry chefs are seen as one thing and chefs are seen as another thing and it can often be gendered I think there's quite a lot of rivalry in the kitchen between like pastry and the cooks and the mm. chefs and they and you know one often feels like they can't do the other the chefs always call the pastry chefs weak and we are not weak. You know, we come in the earliest Outrageous. and we leave the latest. Yes. You know? And they just think that what we do is dainty and boring. It's like we're kind of in the cold area of the kitchen doing our chocolate work or doing our puff pastry rolling, but they're like gutting pigs and like killing lobsters. And, and, you know, I think that there is that big difference. But I do think that, you know, as time has gone on, there's been a more of a merging. So when I wrote Pastry Chef's Guide, I wrote it from a chef's point of view where I wanted like chefs to be able to have this little guide that they could put in their bag and read it on the tube on the way into work and then understand mm. baking because it's not that hard and I wrote it as a building block because my thing was that pastry school is very expensive so the whole thing about this was just bridging that gap without mm. the financial burden yeah a lot of people look at me and immediately they'll be like get into pastry and I'll be like no I can kill the lobster <laughs> I just don't want to <laughs> you know? so. don't you think there's also a thing around uh, sourdough, where this, that whole masculine, feminine thing still exists. I remember so many people saying, well, I'll make bread, because that's the masculine part of baking. Mm. And I found it like, anyone can, like, just do, make what you like. Like, that's all that matters. 
Absolutely. And Rav, I love how you talk about the kind of building blocks of baking, how there's like kind of that structure and those rules to follow. Um, but obviously, we've all had those moments where can you relax those rules too much? And I love how you speak in your book about how actually when we make mistakes and the way that we learn is kind of when we see a mistake as almost a blessing in the kitchen. I found that such a refreshing take on it. Um, so I wondered if I was allowed to ask if you've had any baking disasters or blessings that you would share with us. <laughs> hundreds and hundreds. And I always, yeah. And I, as soon as I learned to flip my brain to then look up to the sky and be like, oh, thanks for this mistake because I've learned something. Then I was uh, comfortable with all the mistakes because I used to be quite perfectionist. But I remember I got hired to make like 200 panna cottas for an event. And I came in as this like event chef and I was like the only pastry <laughs> chef. And I set all these panna cottas like it was nothing and I left. And I went to bed and I was like, I did not put any gelatin in there. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like hot sweat. And I went in the next day and the KP was just standing over the sink pouring these panacotta. I feel like this is like, it's almost like a support group. I I feel like Ed and Nigella, like, have you got anything to rival that? Rav, do you sometimes wake up in the middle of the night and relive it? That experience? (laughs) Well, I... I don't know exactly why things work, which is also kind of can be liberating. I can try, I do things often in a way that you're not meant to because I don't know any better. But things do go wrong. But you know, it's about, you know, how I often say what's true in the kitchen is true out of it. If you don't risk failure, you're, you're not really going to succeed. You know, it does teach you something. For, for me, what it often teaches is be a bit, you know, learn patience, which is, you know, an ongoing journey for me. (laughs) But, you know, in in Goddess, I had a recipe called Easy Almond Cake. And when we were doing the shoot, I I was a bit impatient and I didn't actually obey my instructions about how long to leave it in the tin before (laughs) taking it out. And so it cracked. You know, it's fish and it was a sort of, um, not quite a bunt tin, but that sort of thing. And so, and Petrina Tinsley, the photographer, she said, do you want to make it again? And I went, look, Petrina, if I'm having people for dinner, I wouldn't have tried to make it again. So I just, you know, raspberries, icing sugar. (laughs) And I wrote that in, you know, I did write that in the book, you know, that there's there's so many things you can do to sort of distract from any errors. Mm -hmm. Um, But... But I think you have to, whether you're cooking or baking, you do need to feel your way in it and learn to trust your own judgments. Yeah, there's something quite high stakes about baking as well, isn't it? We were talking about that kind of magic trick and the wonder and the specialness of it. But the flip side of that is, you know, you can't check and yeah. like so you can't sort of taste as you go. And so there is that element of suddenly waking up and realising you haven't put the gelatin in the pan. I so often put cakes <laughs> in the oven and having forgotten the sugar or something. I always forget. I the don't sugar. know. Sugar's the one thing I'm like, this doesn't feel yeah, right. Yeah. Why does this batter feel thick? Well, handily enough, as we mentioned sugar, Rav, it's a a part of your book, isn't it? And you talk about growing up above a corner shop and your sweet tooth and and kind of embracing and loving sugar and the joy that it brings. When I first pitched the pastry chef's guide, Mm. I said, I want to call it Sugar, I Love You. And they said, well, no one knows who you are, so no one will buy this weird book, (laughs) Sugar, I Love You. So this book is more like... I feel like it's more me and it's like I had to write Pastry Chef's Guide to explain and to do that bit for like cookery courses and you know if you couldn't afford it you'd buy that book. Sugar I Love You is like 
like just like a love letter. And it's all like I've got different essays in there about points in my life that involve sugar. Like if you're dating a guy mm. and he pulls the eclair away from your mouth, you absolutely shouldn't leave him. And, <laughs> it talks about, and I talk about my experiences in kitchens, like my family. But the whole thing is that actually you can't appreciate sugar unless it's balanced. I'm not about like stuffing mm. your face with like mountains of sweet things, as long as it's balanced and there's salt, actually. You can't just eat something heavily sweet. Like I eat something sweet every day, but it, it's always a bit mm. balanced. And more men yeah. seem to do the I haven't got a sweet tooth as if it's, it's girly food. A virtue, yeah. I mean, I don't have a particularly sweet tooth, but that's in a way why baking can be fun because you're balancing, you know, you're balancing. I mean, for me, my, I would think some of my favourite flavours in baking a lemon and coffee because the bitterness or the sharpness are so wonderful with sugar and the Guinness, of course, in the chocolate cake, the bitterness. So I think that you can cook different things for your palate. Yeah, completely. One thing that we've not touched on, but I think has definitely been quite noticeable throughout the last year and in recent time is baking almost being used for its kind of power to like do good and there are so many bakeries that have a social enterprise kind of um, aspect like luminary bakery which works with kind of disadvantaged women um there's hm pasties in manchester which was a new one on me but they work with young offenders and i know that um, bramba bakehouse martha is, a, is is someone that you work with and you're very passionate about and it does seem like i don't know if it's specifically baking or a what is it about baking that it is this useful tool to kind of engage people that might need it the most? Mm, exactly. I mean, I think baking, it's universal. Every culture, every cuisine, something is baked. And I think Bramber Bakehouse is a, an organisation which teaches women who've experienced sex trafficking. Um, it helps them as part of their rehabilitation journey to kind of believe in themselves. And there is something so incredible. I feel so honoured to have been a teacher at the Bakehouse for a while. Um, something amazing like seeing these women, they come in and they lack confidence and they can't use a digital scale and they don't understand the ingredients. And then even just in a, as short as eight weeks, one lesson a week later, they can bring things in from home that they've made and they are just lit up by the power that food brings and sharing food and having kind of harnessing your creativity and getting to share that with others. I also do think with bread, say, you use your hands. You are you really feel like you're making something for someone and it, it it's personal and it comes, you know, from a part that's obviously you, you feel you're, you're, you're also aware you're taking part in some very sort of ancient practice that carries on. There's a lot of, I suppose, history behind it and the history of humanity. So that feels important. But I think anyway, you know, sharing food is such an essential part of of human beings. And I think during the lockdown, it did feel hard not being able to share food. So we all found ways to do it that were possible with those constraints. And that shows how, how in a way, you know, that baking is sometimes, I thought, well, a cake, a chocolate cake, say, is sort of a unit of celebration. But baking yeah. is also a, a, a way of giving something complete to someone. They don't have to do anything to it except eat it. But I like that. And, you know, Martha, when you were talking, I also feel that we all tend to get into terrible habits of limiting ourselves. Like, I'm not the sort of person who can bake. I'm not the sort of person who likes that. I'm no good at this. 
And transcending that feels so significant. And I think that's also why mm. it's rather wonderful to share because somehow it's, well, maybe I'm now going into lands of, you know, too much pretentiousness, it has been known. Um, but I would say that in a way, it's about overcoming your vulnerabilities and sharing that with someone. That's important. Absolutely. It spills over as well, doesn't it, into other areas of your life. As soon as you're confident in one area and you understand those building blocks of baking, it just is so powerful when it overflows into other areas of your life and you feel more confident to go forth. I think that's why baking is special because it's inherently social. You know, you can cook for yourself, but you rarely bake just for yourself. It's an inherently generous act. And I think that's, I think that's maybe why so many bakeries have, you know, a, a social enterprise aspect or, you know, we all grew up with bake sales. You know, it just is, it feels correct, I think. Yeah. 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 The, the sort of humble gift that you can make mm. and pass on. We've edged around it slightly, but with like the visual component of baking in the modern cooks like Arsenal and social media and Instagram's obviously a huge part of that. Um, how do you all feel? I was going to start with Ed because you take your own photos and do your own styling and it's, so striking and beautifully done. How do you feel about sort of, I don't know, the tyranny of Instagram or the visual aspect of things? I do think it's actually had an effect because I don't care how something looks. I literally think the only thing that's important with baking should be how it tastes. And so I think people have somehow latched onto this idea that baking is about perfection. And I think, unfortunately, I think Bake Off's to blame partly and it, it just doesn't matter. I remember when we filmed the season and they were saying, all your cookies have to be exactly the same size. And I was like, why? <laughs> it's a home baker's show. Why does it have to be perfect? And I think Instagram has done a similar thing where it kind of rewards perfection in look. And I think it's a little sad because that's not how baking was for me when I was a kid, you know. I, I come from a very cliche, like, food writer background of, oh, I baked with my mum and my grandma, you know. Um, and nothing was perfect. Nothing looked the same, but it was delicious. And those memories are what's important. So um, make your wonky cake and your, you know, slightly burnt bread. It's delicious. It's fine. How about you, Rev? Do you have a, have a take on the whole, the visual side of things? I can't keep up in the same way Ed does. Like, Ed's feed is gorgeous and I can't do that that's not me because I'm like always on in a rush I'll like quickly get it maybe in a bit of sunlight if I can <laughs> and then post it when I can and not really like fuss too much about it I wish I was better but when we do like junior bake-off the kids I would always say to them it's not about how it looks it's how it tastes so when they would present something awful they say it's about how it tastes <laughs> oh I that's that. so great yeah and it ties back in with ed as you were saying those memories of of baking growing up and it's there's such a valuable lesson in that isn't there like oh it didn't work but never mind how do they taste and, and nigella we actually a former podcast guest sarah millican told us that she made a pavlova was worried about it it was one of your recipes and she tweeted you and you kind of counseled her talked her <laughs> off this ledge as it were and said um and said how does it taste and she said amazing and you said well it's perfect then that's all that matters and and i know that it's something you do people might be surprised but yeah your twitter feed is <laughs> you kind of <laughs> congratulating people yeah, but it's lovely to see but i would make a mm. distinction perhaps between baking 
at home and patisserie because patisserie is about fantasy uh, and somehow you know you go into a French patisserie it's exquisite it's like everything's like a jewel box and then you that is important but because that's what but then if it if it didn't taste good then you know you the romance would go out of that vision but i think it's you know and i think Ed, a lot of your a lot of your you know when you post something i think it looks so lovely but i can also tell reading it you know the, the flavors about the flavors so i can latch on to that but i think funnily enough baking ordinary baking is one of those things that looks so much better to the eye when the cake's on the table often and it can be a real challenge to a photographer there's something about the lack of contrast which is why people often put lots of stuff around you know that somehow when you put a slice of cake on a plate somehow when you take a photograph the plate sort of dominates more it's you know you is and you know when you do a photo shoot you have to get old-fashioned small side plates because the eye and the camera lens record slightly differently i remember when i was doing my first ever book shoot and i definitely used to have a very incredibly annoying perfectionist gaze when i looked at my own work and i would become very frustrated And I remember we were working on this recipe and I couldn't be there for that day. And then I came back and I saw the cake they'd made from my recipe, but they'd made it in a completely different look. And I I hated it. I really hated it. And my publisher, uh, Kyle, she gave me a really good piece of advice. And the reason I didn't like it is because it wasn't perfect. And she said to me, if it's not perfect, it looks like people can make it. And I think that was a really important lesson of, I remember it also looks tastier when it's not perfect sometimes. I remember seeing a cookbook, I think it was from America, and it was a layer cake. And everything was so pristine and perfect. It looked fake. It didn't look real. And I think there's something kind of joyous in the slapdash look of a homemade cake you know sometimes you just know oh that's going to taste delicious and I think that's great it's about things tasting delicious isn't it and I think the way that you style things Ed just makes them look it's all the swirls and the drips and the drizzles and the crumbs of real baking and it makes it so much more achievable because you look at the image and you think you eat with your eyes first I want to make that but you also all of you celebrate ingredients celebrate seasonal fruits and kind of fresh things ancient grains and these are the things that I think need a boost and need a lift and Instagram and TikTok and all these things do do a good job at lifting them at different points which is why I guess we all fall in love with food even more as we scroll in our downtime How do we feel about brownies generally? They seem to have almost taken on a life of their own and they're their own. uh, There's great variance in what people think of as like a perfect brownie. Like some are just kind of like a wet ganache. Like some are kind of like, you know, really kind of uh, tricked out with a million other things. I do think that sometimes brownies can be a bit ridiculous. I mean, let's get that out there. Sometimes we add too many things to it. But I, I don't know. There's something about the texture of just a really good fudgy brownie and I think it's delicious. I think it Mm. is one of those things that can become too sweet and there isn't the balance in there. But I think there's so much fun to play with and I think they're really, it's a really simple recipe and people can really enjoy making them. And because it's a brownie, if the texture's not right when it comes out of the oven, it doesn't matter because 
it's probably another style of brownie, you know, oh, it came out a bit cakey. You know, it's a cakey brownie, you know, but I think especially because chocolate is an ingredient that I will forever love. It's endlessly fascinating. It's incredibly varied. And I think it just lends itself to so many different things, but a brownie will probably be one of my all time comforts. Yeah. Like there's just something delicious about them. Do you think there's an element of chocolate? being maybe a little bit misunderstood in that way that people sort of think of it as, Oh, like this kind of catch all for like overly sweet and kind of, cause I know Nigella, you're, you're a real advocate for like proper, intense, complex uh, chocolate. Well, as well. Yes. But I mean, I don't like, I don't actually like baking with any, you know, with very high cocoa. It's 85. I think it makes things taste chalky, but certainly, you know, there's 70%, but you know, to go into brownies again, you know, the thing is it's so doable. I often sort of want to go back to a plainer one, but you know, even changing nuts or something like that. And everyone tends to like them, but chocolate itself isn't enormously sweet it's really what you do with it and that's why I think coffee is so good in chocolate baking I'm forever adding you know instant espresso powder because it just goes in very easily and trying to underpin that fabulous melting richness of chocolate with a with a bit of bitterness and you know or salt indeed so I think you know chocolate generally doesn't have to be sweet. People get quite defensive, don't they, about the, the piece of the brownie that they like, whether it's the middlest, curious piece, any corner piece people out there. <laughs> no, Ed's shaking his head. It's not a corner piece. Middle I love piece a corner. Only. I do, but only if only. it's gungy in the inside still. Yes. Mm. Are there times where you feel like you need to kind of reignite your own excitement with baking like when you've got that professional side of it and you're thinking about recipes constantly talking about them imagining bakes yeah have you got examples like let's start with you ed like of of times where you've been like oh do you know what i i think i might have baked my last cake i don't know if there's anything else to to add like i don't know i think it's all been done yeah i think for me i i don't know if it's necessarily about the baking specifically or more about the level of work i go through these kind of spurts of time where i just kind of work incredibly solidly so i will have done back-to-back books for a few years and then normally i take a big break because i need to kind of reset my just the way i think about things but for me the biggest way that i've always kind of reinvigorated my love of baking but more from a writing point of view is travel is to get out of you know and it doesn't have to be abroad it can just be anywhere and you know I often just will have a little notebook with me and you know I will try something and it will spark an idea or it will just make me excited again and Mm. that to me is always are there any specific things that you've tried recently that have kind of set you off down the path well I'm currently in Crete so I'm going to say this wrong, I'm sure, because I don't speak any Greek, but there was um, a breakfast dish, really. It's called bugatza. Mm, it's fantastic. And it's, it's so mm. delicious. It's like flaky field pastry surrounding a semolina custard or sometimes soft um, Greek or Cretan cheeses. And then the version that I had, they it's like a square pie, basically, very thin square pie. And the guy would chop it into tiny little pieces and then dust the whole thing with um, ice and sugar, and just a little bit of ice and sugar and cinnamon, almost like a pache sonata. And it was so delicious. And I literally was talking to a pastry chef friend of mine um, this morning and I was like, 
as I get off the plane, I will be buying ingredients to go straight into my kitchen and make it. <laughs> and that excitement is always really great to feel because sometimes when I'm in my own kitchen at home, just working away solidly, I forget that kind of joy sometimes. Very rarely. Yes. But just yeah, occasionally yeah, yeah. I need that sort of reset. So how about you, Rav? We mentioned St. John. Like I didn't quite realise that the pudding menu there is as long as the savouries, which is an amazing thing, but obviously a lot of work for someone like you when you were in that job. What are the kind of things for you that can can spark an idea and kind of reignite your sort of creative juices? I mean, funnily enough, at St. John, I think the pudding menu was 15 different puddings. And to change anything at St. John, it was a long process. Everything was very set in their ways. And I came in completely like wanting to do things with like mango and pistachio and they were like get back into your box no (laughs) if I ever wanted to change something I'd spend my days off like testing and testing and testing and my whole thing with baking is just like getting to run wild in the kitchen but when I've been working in kitchens for so long I've barely had any time to bake for pleasure it's always been like work 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 and I actually love it when someone bakes me a cake yes Totally agree. There's nothing better, especially when you are a baker, when somebody bakes you something because you get neglected, I feel. (laughs) Rav, I wanted to ask, in your book, you talk about kind of the feeling of when you eat something sweet as time standing still. Um, And I wanted to ask more about that feeling. What's it like? (laughs) I just, I'm one of those people that find a lot of pleasure in eating and in especially eating a piece of chocolate cake. And especially during lockdown, I lived with my 90-year-old grandma my mom and my family and it was a chaos mm-hmm. house and I would find that I, would, I was testing lots of chocolate cakes I actually got to try Ed's chocolate cake which was incredible I just remember this the part of my day that was like the best was cutting a piece of chocolate cake putting it in the microwave for 10 seconds pouring cold cream all over it mm. sitting in front of the tv with my fork and everybody knew leave me alone for those 10 minutes <laughs> <laughs> cake reset and then get back to you know <laughs> That is incredible. I love that. Yeah. No, I'm going to have to try that with the uh, with the microwave as well. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And Nigella, you often do that in your some of your TV programs where you're kind of with alone with a fork <laughs> <laughs> and a piece of brownie. <laughs> you can relate to well, that. Well, yes, feeling. but I get that when I eat anyway. If I eat something good, and I think that's part of the comfort, isn't it? Because suddenly you're in a, existing suddenly in a in a world of pleasure. And, you know, in other words, not the real world. And so that, and so that's wonderful. But, you know, so I have to say, you know, during lockdown, a recipe that was quite a late edition with the mine all mine cookies, because I was alone for the whole of lockdown. And, you know, the thing is, you know, you could make a small amount, but the idea of, even though you could save the rest of the egg for scrambled egg, you know, beating it and then putting like a teaspoon in. And I actually, I really enjoyed the focus of trying to make two cookies you know, without egg, but they tasted like proper cookies. And it did go on for quite a long time, the testing, but also I enjoyed it. Well, it does seem like all of you, but especially you, Nigella, you know, I've I've literally done it twice during this conversation where recipes I've got from your books and I feel almost a bit possessive over them. And like, you must have that so much where people have this relationship with your recipes and they kind of feel an ownership in a strange way. Well, that's, that's rather wonderful. I do love it. You know, there's one I've got, my chocolate Malteser cake, that so many people with that one have said, I have baked this for every year for my son's birthday since it came out and now he's 28 or something. And, and that is rather lovely. But I think that that is, I don't know, that is the great honour, I think, 
of writing recipes. And obviously, when you write recipes for cakes, they're normally for celebratory occasions. To be part or to have one's recipe part of someone else's, um, there was sort of that ritual of celebration. Oh, it, you know, we're going to do that cake again because that's what he wants for his birthday or this is what we're going to do at Christmas. And that's, it's so touching. It's like, you know, you say, you know, when people go like, oh, you do a lot of answers on Twitter and like that. But I'm so grateful. It's so wonderful. It's something I can't get over. Something that I've been cooking at home and then you see it in someone else's home and they're cooking it and part of it. It's community, I suppose, and that's essential in life. Nigella, you know that in a lot of restaurant kitchens, I'll just let you in on a secret. The amount of times I've heard people say, we're well, not going to be as good as that Nigella Guinness cake. <laughs> and I think a lot of restaurant kitchens and smaller ones use a lot of your recipes in the baking section. Well, I'm surprised, but, you know, please. <laughs> Just to follow up on that, Nigella, when me and Rav and a couple of other pastry chefs had a day where we went to a kitchen and we all just made so many chocolate cakes. We made our own recipes, other people's recipes. And something really interesting happened. We made your vegan chocolate cake and everyone was like genuinely shocked at how good <laughs> a vegan, not because it was vegan, just because it tasted not at all vegan. It was so good. And everyone was like, is this vegan chocolate cake the best? Well, I'm so pleased. I make it quite a lot, but you know, for people who aren't vegan as well. It's so delicious. Yeah. It's a new consideration for you as recipe writers and cooks, isn't it? And it feels like one that you've all embraced in the best possible way, like not just vegan, but gluten-free recipes. And and I know, Nigella, you've spoken about that just coming from life, really. Like, you know, you kind of have people that you need to, that don't eat this certain thing mm. or need something that way. And so you kind of, you you figure it out. Do you see that as be, being like a real part of, a growing part of the future of like your, your baking lives, like as it were? Or? No, I love it because it... I, it makes you have to think about baking, cooking, everything you do in a slightly different way. And that can, that's actually, uh, it sort of gives one's enthusiasm a new lease of life. So I do like it. I am very strict in the sense that I have got to feel it is, it's gorgeous in its own right. You know, and I can't always get that. I'm not a, I, I lack the science. I mean, you know, sometimes I can't, you know, I just can't get the texture right. And sometimes I can, and I try to work on that. But I do, um, but I can, you know, with all, most of my vegan cakes, all of them, I can remember often who I cooked it right, for the first time. Right, yeah, oh, amazing. And, you know, actually, um, the dark and sumptuous chocolate cake, that vegan chocolate cake was from quite, I made it quite a long time ago because I was um, doing a dinner for Alan Cumming. I mean, just, he came for dinner and I invited some other people and he's vegan. So I, we have him to thank for that cake. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Thank you, Alan Cumming. Ed and Rav, I wanted to bring you both in kind of on that point, but it seems like especially you, Ed, you've embraced kind of vegan and gluten-free recipes and just kind of um, adapting and changing. And I suppose you could sort of frame that as the ways in which baking is changing and the future of baking. What are the things that are kind of really 
um, shaping the ways in which you want to bake now? You've mentioned travel, but are you are you thinking about like what lies ahead in terms of like how what we might see more of, and what would you like to see more of? Yeah, I definitely. I, mean, I think a lot about um, where our food comes from. And so one of the things that I, for the last couple of years, I've been playing around with a lot more is um, what is deemed ancient grains. And so it's kind of, I think of it more as like the ignored grains. And it's these uh, these wheats and these flowers that are, you know, ancient in their use and create, uh, origin, but just often aren't used in a home kitchen very often. You know, very often you might see in a restaurant menu, you know, something with, say, buckwheat or einkorn or any of these things, but they just don't have the throughput into most home kitchens. And I think the nutrition level of them is often quite high because they're an unprocessed product. So they have a little bit more protein or they have more, um, you know, nutrition in them, but they also just taste so good. And I think that's something I will kind of sing about forever because like, I make this cake that is, um, it's a lemon cake and it's a very simple lemon cake, but it's made with einkorn flour, no regular wheat and um, sourdough discard. So kind of, you know, old sourdough discard. And it's the easiest cake in the world to make if you have sourdough, obviously. Um, and it's so delicious and it has this super complexity. It's not sweet at all, even though there's lots of sweet elements to it. And it's just so good. And I just think, White flour is white flour, and in a cake it can it can do its job, but sometimes you just want to add extra layers of flavour. So that is something I will always be doing. Yeah, it's definitely something I've noticed as well, and it feels going back to the idea of baking, uh, having this kind of timeless wonder to it, and being quite approachable. It's a really good way to start those conversations about you know better grains and better farming practices yeah, and, yeah, things like, and I've definitely seen it in pizzas and cakes and breads and things like that um Rav how about you what what kind of things are you kind of thinking about more do you see as part of baking's future what what would you like to see more as part of baking's future I mean I think I went into baking wanting the whole like unobtainable delicious patisserie that looked really difficult to make mm, and I wanted yeah. to, I wanted to be that sort of pastry chef and then when I went to St John I flipped and I just wanted all like seasonality and I wanted yeah. to it just really delicious and I yeah, my yeah, whole yeah. mind changed and I actually think during lockdown people started to appreciate seasonality a lot more I think mm, it's really having yeah. its moment in a good yeah, way and recognizing yeah. we have lovely things like crab apples and damsons and like delicious things all year round yeah, and yeah. also supporting those like local farms and local suppliers mm. and like British butter and dairy is amazing to me yeah and those things kind of almost being the spark the thing that sets you off like you know you see that there's these amazing yeah as you say like you know gooseberries or whatever or something available and that's like oh I'll make this then and that kind of like sets you off um and Nigella let's finish up with you what what are you what's kind of are you already uh, I don't know ask you if there's a new book forming or anything like that but are you what are you thinking about in terms of baking and well do you know I don't really go at it from that you know way um I'm always aware that you know people want gluten-free and quite a lot uh, I, you know, the thing is, I have got actually some some chocolate cookies which have got buckwheat in, which are, you know, rather wonderful. Obviously, the texture's a bit different. I would like to do a bit more vegan baking. It does interest me. Also, it also somehow feels easier in it because obviously there's, there's 
Oh, not really. It's always that, it, for me anyway, it is just a jug of wet ingredients and a bowl of dry ingredients. And that can be very quick. I don't know. I love a big project. I, I am, you know, I like pottering about in the kitchen the weekend. So I'm also playing about with things which are time consuming, maybe, but easy, but fairly easy. Because I think that's another distinction people uh, get confused and they go, that's well, it, it takes time or you have to let it prove overnight in a fridge, but it's actually easy. So I, so I like having a, you know, a few different things, but I don't, I don't bake or on spec in a way. So, and in a less social time, I've been baked, perhaps that means I've been baking less. On the other hand, if I know anyone's coming around, it gives me a good excuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Martha, I want to know from you as well, what are you kind of thinking about? What are you kind of, I, I also want to know before we finish up, I'd love to know how long, the longest each of you have spent chasing one of those recipes and trying <laughs> things out. Like what is your record in terms of, really really trying to nail something but yeah Martha in terms of baking's future and things that you're thinking about a little bit more and the way in which you see your baking heading and perhaps the wider world of baking heading I think for me I'm just always amazed at how new trends are just constantly circling and almost not in a cliche way but the fact that yes seasonal ingredients we just fall back in love with them and things that were really popular maybe in the 70s or 80s somehow like research and people appreciate them again and I think that's what's so good about food is I can't see that cycle ever ending I think they'll always be regenerating we'll be regenerating things that we were making in 2010 or whatever <laughs> they'll come back in 10 years time and it will be new and exciting again I think that's why I love working in food because I love the way that yeah ingredients just keep cycling things come back yeah 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 mm. I had an unbelievable trifle the other day, guys, and I was like, trifle. trifle. Oh, my God. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we should, we should finish up. But, yeah, have you thought, um, what's your longest then, Ed, in terms of, like, chasing a, a recipe or trying to nail one? Yeah, it's not necessarily a specific recipe. It was more technique. I became slightly, I have a slightly obsessive mind when it comes to baking, especially my work. And I can just end up going down a rabbit hole where I have to kind of pull myself out and go, it does not matter. And <laughs> it was shoe pastry. I love making shoe pastry. But I, I got into this really, nobody else would care. Obsessive thing about how salt level would affect uh, an openness and how glazing with different things would uh, you know, prevent the shoe from opening up properly. And I spent like five weeks just doing nothing but making shoe pastry. And then at the end of it, I went, <laughs> is my recipe any better than it was at the start? I mean, no. But I really enjoyed it. So it was like, okay, I'm going to say, <laughs> let's shelve that project. But yeah, at the I point where you of, need an intervention of some kind <laughs> yeah, or something. Yeah, my boyfriend came in the kitchen and went, again? More <laughs> <laughs> but I think that that again goes back to what we were initially talking about that sort of play and the mm. figuring things out and the kind of you know that mm. yeah that sort of wonder of it like Rav what about you do you still feel this do you kind of get in that obsessive mode as well or are you able to sort of let things go I'm really good at letting it go. <laughs> I don't have time. I just say it is what it is. It tastes good. Let's move on. And, you know, I'm used to being in kitchens where you make hundreds and hundreds of the same thing every day. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. I like that. I think speaking as a from a consumer's point of view, we're just also grateful for the amount of time and love and energy that you guys put into your recipes. Because as you say, the communities online, communities in real life where people are appreciating and constantly baking the same cakes over and over again. But 
because people like you put those time and those months into these rabbit holes of recipes. There's many people that are grateful for that. <laughs> yeah, completely, completely. Um, thank you so much for your time, for the baking disaster support group uh, that we set up. Um, it's been an absolute joy and it's made me really rethink or think about baking in a new way and the real sort of magic that it that it kind of brings into our everyday. And it's just been a total honour to have all of you here. So thank you so much for joining us and um, can't wait to uh, taste or try what you bake next. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I could, I could say, I mean, I can't, but I would like to stay all day. You've been listening to the Life on a Plate Baking Special. I'm Jimmy Famarewa. Thank you to my co-host Martha Collison and our special guests, Ravneet Gill, Ed Kimber and Nigella Lawson. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you can find lots more like it by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the series, go to waitrose.com forward slash podcast. <laughs>